Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? in the nook you're not in your little pod no i'm not oh you mean at the oh yeah co-working oh yeah oh yeah yeah it's a whole shit show like i you know it was interesting because i thought they're really lax about masks here so (laughs) and i thought you know that's not gonna go well like there's this thing in pasadena where and maybe I might be making all this up, but I think I'm right. That it's like a real sort of old school, right wingy kind of a place. And like, Uh and like, and like, um, it was a sundown town. So, which means, what does that that, mean? Okay. So black people could not be out after sundown up until like 1960. Oh, that that was literally a law. (laughs) I, 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 I'm pretty sure there was a, like a law. Uh, it's bad so there's a lot of them if you look it up online there's a lot of these towns um in in the country but like yeah yeah for for and they of course i'm sure they said it was for the safety of the black people you know what i mean some garbage ass racist ass shit yeah uh and and they're not wrong but it's only because the white people were killing them i mean like that's that's they were in danger so anyway uh anyway that i'm just saying there's a trickle down effect like yeah there's this for sure thing there where oh, totally. like, why is nobody wearing and then i was like oh and i was talking in spanish to the um to the woman who cleans and i was like you know we were talking about it and like my spanish is probably like at um seventh seven-year-old level but i i could uh-huh. kind of glean what she was saying which was her bosses told her not to wear a mask at the cleaning plate like while she was cleaning because it made people uncomfortable and she was like no way because she almost she lost she said her husband and her kids all had covid and she did too back in back a year ago and Mm -hmm. so after that she was like i'm wearing a mask but anyway so now so two people had it reported i mean who knows what really went down but two people upstairs in this they were upstairs in like a suite that people you can rent like a legit office there and so like right so it wasn't downstairs i don't care we share coffee we share all the common areas okay and then i started getting this massive headache and i was like oh my but i always get migraines so who knows right yeah and then my throat was hurting and i was like okay oh my gosh so i got a test but here's the thing because of the surge you it's there's like it's really hard to get a, a a proper test not a rapid test i mean you can get a rapid test for 25 bucks at walgreens the shit is like 50 percent, like right on if you get a positive that's right on but if you get a negative it's a 50 percent chance with a rapid test i was reading that it's that it's wrong so that you think you're you're negative and you're really positive it's just like we can't do anything right we I can't know. even get the tests right so it's like so there's so I did my PCR and I had to wait forever and that's okay in the car whatever and then they were like look it's going to take a really long time to get your results because we basically we thought we were done with this and now and I'm like oh my god they're having to scramble to get to all get the way people back now and get people to read the labs <laughs> yeah anyway I'm negative I don't have covid praise jesus um, yay cuz I was that's like wonderful yeah but 
I don't think I told you this. My niece has COVID in Chicago. Dahlia. No, no, no. That's my cousin. Oh, um, your niece. Oh, your niece. Oh, no. Mia. 17-year-old Mia has oh, COVID God. because 80 kids at her school had it and got work and she was, I, I think, got it from them. And then now she has it and she had, you know, it was scary. She's vaxxed but not boosted because there wasn't enough time between her vaccine and with, okay, so she had a fever of 103.5 um vaxxed with this variant it's a it's the variant and uh they think i think i remember you telling me when you were in chicago and and that she was hanging out with her friends and you were like i can't really hang out inside with you because you've been just she she just they just teenagers and they don't you know they yeah. don't give a shit understandably they're thinking about college and like you know, she, she, she's anyway, uh, it's not shocking that she got it. Also Evanston, you know, my alma mater, Evanston Township High School had 120 students in one day after Thanksgiving get COVID test positive for COVID. Wow. So they're, they're, they're back online. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm just waiting for that to happen here. I'm sure it's going to happen at any point. So anyway, oh, all right. So this I'm is... healthy. I'm healthy. Good. I'm I'm Good. relatively happy. I um, yeah. So that's what's going on with me. How are things over there on the east side of the world? Things are cold, frigid, okay. frosty, bitter. Yeah. But um... <laughs> <laughs> if we just this keep is... going, it, it might get like bitter, desolate. Today... Today is somewhat of a good day because today is the shortest day of the year, which means after today, the days will begin to get longer, which I've just like, thank goodness for that. For a lot of people, people with sad and not even people with sad, that the solstice is like really important for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that there's more hope after today. (laughs) 100%. Speaking of that, um, you know, I also noticed that this is the time of year where a lot of people die, you know, because I don't know why. I've just always noticed that like the end of December, a lot of people die. And somebody that I was, I mean, we weren't close or anything, but I was friends with somebody um, who only in the summer, I want to say, found out that she had um, bone, bone marrow cancer. Is that leukemia? I mean, there's yeah, all kinds of blood cancers, but yeah. And anyway, she died yesterday. Oh and she God. was How a was she? one. I don't know exactly. I think maybe she was in her early 60s. So young. Young. Um, her, you know, she has. Anyway, she was a brilliant writer. And yeah, uh, last night I was reflecting on the fact that I've said on this podcast, I'm not afraid of death. And recently I'm like, Hmm. Right. <laughs> Am I rethinking this? And I and I but I did say at the time, I'm sure it's just because I haven't really had to deal that much with it, you know, like my own before my your own sister, health. Yeah. But then my sister died and she left no trace, essentially, minus her two beautiful children. Um and uh, people just start I I just rem- I remember in you know, when I was in my 20s and people who were in their 50s and 60s were constantly going to funerals. <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God. You know, and I somehow I chalked it up to that's you. You're weird. You, right. you know, dies. 
right. instead of this is just what happens now. Right. I'm not ready for it. I'm not ready to just have a bunch of people die. I'm going to say no. that. Maybe that's what it is. I'm more afraid of other people dying. Like, I okay, l- let's unpack this. In the last month, I've been afraid of you dying three times in a serious way. The first time was when you went to San Francisco and there was like this one period of time. I mean, it was probably like a couple of hours. Oh, yeah. We were supposed to have a call. Well, are we no, I, actually no. it was just that you normally text me back right away and this yeah. time you didn't. And I just decided that you were I decided that you went to San Francisco and somebody murdered you. Like I right. and I couldn't be I couldn't be shaken of that. Then when you told me you were sick, I was like, oh my gosh, she's gonna get COVID and die. This mm-hmm. is <laughs> and then one other time, I can't remember what the other time was. Why am I why? probably with my I'm... ovary, my ovary when we thought I had cancer, maybe. Maybe yeah, that's it. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Well, and then of course when you when you had your heart issue, but oh well that, yeah. But, but re- I don't know why I'm, oh. I'm I don't know why I feel worried about it. I must just be putting my worry about something else into my worry that you're, into a fear that you're going to die. You don't have a, well, that fear that you're going to die right now, do you? Not right now, but I feel really good. But I did, you know, it's interesting. I did. Say, I mean, this is going to be so crazy if I do die, but I mean, I will <laughs> die. But um, because last night I thought if I, you know, like I'm starting to feel really good about um, choices I'm making in my life. So I thought, oh my yeah. God, if, cause we're driving to San Fe and I was like, oh, what if we get in a car, car crash? And I was like, well, I would feel, I would, I mean, that would suck. But also like, I, I at least I, I would go out on a high note. Like well, I'm and not with in your a, little family, everybody. Right. That's why I always think you want your whole family to be together. Right. If you have to die. And like, you know, yeah. watch, we, we die and Doris lives oh, to, like, <laughs> to fucking eat the drywall on our walls another day. Anyway. Wait, is she eating the drywall in your house? So it's not the drywall, but basically it's the moldings around the, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm taping with white painter's tape. It's not good. When we leave here, whenever we get a house, it's going to be like, they're going to be like, you owe us. You (laughs) Forget your security deposit. You owe us $25,000. Puppy Frenchies love wood. Like, so we get her all these wood sticks that are like fake wood, wood. I don't know. But no, she wants uh-huh. to eat the molding. So we put her in daycare today. Praise real, Jesus yeah. on the cross. Okay, good. So if she, if you can't be in co-working, she can be in co-working. Oh, so yeah. Have a little oh, yeah. Space. I can't be yeah. messing around with that. So, um, no, no, I don't feel like I'm going to die. I feel like um, I'm, I am I feel pretty good, but I also feel like it was scary. Um, yeah, it was really scary to, to know, to, to feel a headache and a sore throat and know that people yeah. at co-working were sick. And then to hear, I mean, this variant is insane. It's insane. Everyone is, they were saying, I, I don't know if this is true. I read an article that said one out of every four, 3.5 of us is going to get it. One out of every 3.5. OMG. Wow. So what, what, what? a lot. So anyway. You know, I will just say, I will just say, I know, I hate it when people say things like this. So I'm, I'm going to be a person that I hate. <laughs> Two weeks ago, I kept seeing everybody's going to all these Broadway shows yep. and every, and I'm like, really? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's like, to me, that's just wild abandon, you know, because especially Broadway, the theaters are small the seats are small you're really crammed right next to the person they're not doing the spacing out thing 
And I'm sure everybody was wearing their mask, but still, it's just, it's a, it's hundreds of people in one room crowded together, breathing in the same breathing space. Breathing a lot. Like, and also like crying and like all the fluid. Or laughing or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, so, and, and I, a couple of those people that I saw posting about going to shows, I then saw that they posted that they have COVID. So, you know, I'm sorry for you if you have it. And I'm not saying like you're a bad person for going to see a show. I'm just saying, what what did you think was going to happen? Right. I mean, I think that it's interesting because it's like the, what is it? Indomitable human spirit. It, it goes both ways, right? Like we're so, so dumb and we're so, so hopeful, hopeful at the same time. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. We've got yeah, so much we're like hope puppies. We're, we're stupid. Just dumb and hopeful. Yeah. And like super like, oh, this time it's going to be different. Like this, time, <laughs> this time the variant is going to be nice to us. Are you fucking stupid? The only job yeah. of the fucking variant is to mutate and try to kill us. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's its job. Like, it's just like oh the IRS. God, so, the way Aaron put it to me yesterday, he was like, what did he say? We were talking about it. And, and I said, oh. Every once in a while, I say, I look to him and I say, okay, so what's going to happen? Because he's been right every yes. time. And he said, you know, uh, the the variant <laughs> figured out Omicron, like, I mean, or figured out COVID, like we didn't do it fast enough. He said something, he said it in a way that was really personified, like the, the variant, I just yeah. thought the variant is this, you know, villain yes. in a movie, like. He figured it out. He yes. cracked the code and now he's unleashing destruction on the entire Yes. World. Oh my Yikes God. among us. So I guess yeah. I'll be staying home for the next three to seven years, um, <laughs> which is fine, I guess, because I have everything I need here. Yeah. Uh, my son said to me, because I, I have a little cold right now, he goes, how did you get sick? You never leave this house. <laughs> And I said, yeah, but you fools do. And you come back and bring all your germs with you. Oh, that's so true. Hey, let me run this by you. About Jeff Garland. Because we talked about him on the podcast that's airing today. Of course, this is, I think we maybe recorded it the day before. Like the day before. Yeah, he got fired from his television show, but it wasn't based on one incident. It's apparently, and and he bragged about it. He said, oh, this is from something going back two years. So I don't know if that means that he's been doing this bad behavior, whatever it is. I haven't been able to determine what the bad behavior they don't, is. Yeah, there must be like a really strong NDA or like a non, because nobody seems to know like what the behavior is. And I, you know, here's the thing I was going to say, because I've been thinking about this because I knew we were going to talk about it. It's like, here's the thing about undeniability. It goes all the ways. So it's not just good things. It's undeniable if you do something that is is reprehensible. That's undeniable too. Like here's the kicker. Like be undeniable means also like we hope that you take your undeniability and use it for good. At least that's how I'm looking at it. But when something's undeniable, it's like the fucking Holocaust as well. To me, it's undeniable. It just, it happened. It's the truth. And so if you're hurting people, that's the truth as well. And it's going to come back. It's going to come out. We are like in the me three of the me too. And you're going to fucking get got. So like. Yeah. (sighs) 
Yeah. And, and honestly, what's, I feel like the trend is people who are arguing with these allegations, they are, they're typically saying some version of the same thing, which, you know, reading between the lines is everybody's too sensitive. You can't make a joke. And I, I was actually really grateful for him characterizing his non-apology in that way, because it clarified for me, all right, here's what happens. Every time somebody says, You're the, everyone else is too sensitive and they need to get over it. How I interpret that is I am, I, my need to say whatever I want is more important than anybody else's need to have an, a working environment where they feel safe. Mm-hmm. You know, when people are casting all these aspersions about people being too sensitive, what they never seem to understand is they're being sensitive about that. Like, we're just talking about your sensitivity. Right. If, you're, if your thing is, okay, it came up actually, I, I had a real life experience with it. Um, another thing about... <laughs> about content warnings and this person we couldn't figure out why this person couldn't let go essentially the issue is he's a playwright we had this rule if you're going to put up your play and it has potentially sensitive material you need to put a content warning now the people who are going to see your play have a choice whether or not they want to check into what the content warnings might be. Right. It's not like it just gets advertised to everybody. So we couldn't figure out why he had an issue with this because we're thinking, well, it doesn't affect you. You don't have to sign up to see the content warnings. But what he was saying was, I don't want to even write a content. I don't want to have to acknowledge in any way that there is something potentially, and I thought, oh, that's a kind of selfishness I've never even thought of. You're so selfish that y- you want, I mean, it's how I'm interpreting, it's like, okay, so you want people to be upset. Y- 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 I don't oh. get it. I-, I don't get, I don't get the logic. If your logic is truly that everybody needs to toughen up, then why don't you toughen up and write the content warning? It's so bizarre. And also it's like, is it it is also um you know what and i think this comes from i it always comes back to me to like family dynamics so that is this case of you're being they always tell the child you're being oversensitive you're being dramatic it is really always 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 to hide some kind of abusive behavior within the family totally totally or or maladaptive pattern whatever you want to fucking call it it's always used. It's never used like, you're so sensitive. That's awesome. Let's figure out how to, never, never. And yeah. I was told that over and over and over and over and over and over. But really what was going on was my family was hyper, super hyper dysfunctional in a way that they could not, no one could tolerate talking about it. So then I became the person that was, so to me, again, like you put, posted this quote, I think, and it's like, you think you have a secret. You have no secret. Let me tell you something. There are no more secrets in this day and age. They're all going to come out. Whatever you think you're hiding, you know, I had a dream about hiding a secret. This is really crazy. So I had a dream that I, that Miles and I were going to have a Zoom with someone, a famous celebrity. And I don't even know who it was. It was some lady, right? 
the lady who we needed help from in some way, the lady bailed or she didn't show up. And Miles and I were on the Zoom and we didn't know it was being recorded. Okay. And while the person was not there, Miles and I started talking shit about this lady, mostly me, mostly me. She was very powerful and I just was talking shit, but at the, at the same time, pretending that like wanting this woman's help. Right. Okay, fine. So the, in the dream, we stopped that and we think, Oh God, she didn't show up. What a flake. But we, I had, I basically talked so much shit about her and then we get a message from her and it was like this faceless fancy lady that says, you know what, in the future, you should really make sure that shit's not recorded because I heard all uh, everything you said to me and I want you to know that you needed to just why you needed to just say it to my face and 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 in the dream I was like she's right she's at like in the dream I knew that there was no recourse that I had done something that was not okay and that it was a warning to not do that in real life like I have never had a clear warning so now I'm like you know, when I talk shit, I'm like, okay, we'll just know this shit is probably recorded somewhere. Even if it's in the annals of the fucking uh, e e e spiritual universe, it's being recorded. Well, thank God for your dream, because what how I'm going to take that is there's a moment coming up in your life where you're you're going to remember that and you're going to make sure that your video is turned off or make sure yep. you're not recording or make sure whatever it is that you need to do. See, our unconscious can be so helpful to us. So times, how, no, right? I took it as a like, a, I was like, thank you. I, I wasn't like, oh, that's so, you know, I was like, nope, this is so I am. Yeah. And I think it's and, and this goes back to the Garland thing of like fucking watch what you're doing like the time mm -hmm. of just blindly doing shit is over it's over it's over and i don't care who you are you may take sometimes quickly sometimes slowly but the shit is coming out and for jeff garland it's like you know this went on for years so this is clearly a, a personality problem and a behavior problem that that you've been getting away with um, and now you're not getting away with it. Anymore. Yeah, it's being chalked up to either that you're charming or or that now you're fam famous, so you're untouchable. Right. So, yeah. So, Jeff Garland, you know, I'm sure you have nothing but good intentions, but I hope you learn from this experience that, you know, you too sometimes have to make yourself a little bit smaller when other people, you know, feel uncomfortable with your behavior and there's nothing wrong with that you can go and be a big ass person at home or with your friends but and not at work not all not at work and also um the other thing that's really interesting to me about this is that just it's sort of the theme a lot in my writing which is that like who good people whoever deems them good i don't know whatever good people do horrible things horrible people do good things we all do a plethora of things it's a matter of how i believe how we are uh hold ourselves accountable and how we hold each other accountable and uh sorry there's like a fiesta at the at the fucking ampm right now um but yeah um so like the theme of like you know, it's interesting because Jeff Garland made a huge impact on me in a positive way, right? But he has now made a huge impact apparently on people in a really, really hurtful, negative way. So both are possible. And it's like, again, how are we going to choose to use our undeniability? And it's up to us. I mean, like nobody, the, yeah. nobody's forced his ass to do some weird shit. No, absolutely. And, um, 
Hang on, hang on. It's going to come back to me. It's okay. It'll come. Uh, oh, oh, I don't, as much as I want people to be held accountable, it's not like I blame them or it's not like I think that they're, I don't know. I think people have the wrong idea about what people mean when they want people to be held accountable. It's not like, boo, right. you, or it's not, and I'm not burning anybody at the stake and nobody's getting, you know, put in the stocks. It's, it's more just like, Hey, you, you need to pay attention. So I don't blame the people who are doing these behaviors because I know that they grew up in the same culture that I did where these kind of behaviors were tolerated sure. and yeah, it's still time to, to move on. But I wanted to share with you that yesterday I was looking for a Christmas movie to watch with my daughter and you know, there's not, I mean, there's kind of a lot, but like a lot of them that I would want to watch are the old ones, Miracle on 34th Street. Right. She's not interested in that. So we picked one that neither one of us had seen before. And uh, we watched like 20 minutes of it. It wasn't good. And it was made, it's called Jack Frost. I think it's called Jack Frost. It has Michael Keaton in it. Oh. And I want to say it was made in the late 90s or early 2000s. Okay. That was before his comeback with Birdman. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Right, 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 right. And honestly, it was like watching... <laughs> A, a, a movie within a movie where they were trying to show the way that movies used to be so white male centered. Like oh, I, I kind of forgotten. I mean, it's, it's the story of Michael Keaton and his son and Kelly Preston's in it, but she just plays that. Oh, you guys kind of a right, mom, right, you know, of course. and there in the opening scene is this big snowball fight and it's all boys. It's all white boys. And I just thought, wow, it's been a long time since I've seen a movie. But that was our entire reality. Like yes. every single representation yes. in media was exactly the same. All the time. Like oh, nonstop. I mean, it's, I look at this period. It's fascinating that you say of like mid 90s to the through the aughts. And I, you know, my, my pilot is about the aughts really. And that was the war. It was like, look. It was it was the worst in my lifetime. I'm not saying it was it was worse than any years back, but I, what I'm saying is like for movies and media specifically, I noticed that I noticed when I watched that period of movies, it's all white, all all dudes, and like um, not good, not good, not funny. Oh not yeah, no, yeah, it wasn't good. Yeah. So I I know I was thinking like you know what it is a good Christmas movie. I think she probably is a little young for it, but is um my old boss's movie, The Weatherman, um, with, with Nick Cage. Oh. It's not really it's a, a Christmas movie, but it's a family. It's, it's so good. And it, oh, you check what's it, it about? It's about a family and, and, and Michael Caine, right? That's the British guy. He's dying. And he comes to sort of reconcile with his, his son who's played by Nicolas Cage. And he, they have a daughter who's a misfit. And uh, Nick Cage has a daughter with with his... And it takes place... It's filmed in Evanston and in Chicago. And okay. I worked there when they made it. I didn't I didn't have much to do with it. But um, anyway, it's hilarious. So if no... It, and okay. it was written by Steve Conrad, who wrote Patriot and Perpetual Grace, which I was in. So not Patriot, but oh, Perpetual Grace. So oh, cool. It's really funny. It's fucking funny and nick cage to me is really great in it and really funny and it's about a marriage that it's a little old but you but for 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 your daughter but i think that it 
I think you might really dig it. And I think other okay. people might really dig it. It's I'll like check it favorite. out. Nicholas Cage is a fantastic actor. He's in a lot of highly underrated movies. I think Face Off was a very good movie. Right? I agree. Wasn't it really good? So there was a, it's interesting. He is such a cult for me, a cultural ph- phenomenon in that you, no one, he's so polarizing, so polarizing in terms of is he good or not? And are his movies good or not? And um, Face Off is brilliant. I, I loved Face Off. I, I happen to love a movie that he's in um, called Matchstick Men with Sam Rockwell. I love, like, there's some real gems in there. And apparently, and I haven't seen it. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it. I wanted to make sure I was telling the truth. I have not seen Pig or Truffle or the I, Pig. I want to watch it. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to. It's supposedly amazing. Oh, is it? Okay, good. And he's and brilliant. Also, and he's great in Leaving Las Vegas. Oh my God. And he's great in True Rom. Right. Oh. He's in True Romance, right? Uh, yeah. Isn't that him? No, that's, that's, um, he's, he, uh, that's, uh, True Romance is, is Christian Patric- Slater. Christian Slater. Okay. What was he in? Was he in something he, with Patricia? Arquette? Well, he was married to her. So that's why people. Oh. That's real life. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway. So anyway, uh, all this to say, if you're listening out there, watch The Weatherman. It's really quite a delightful film. And I, I, I and heartwarming. Okay. So anyway, and Christmassy. I'll, and I'll watch it and I'll report back with my with your Gina's reviews. Yeah. 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 We could start doing that. <laughs> we could. We could. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Um, I'm trying about? to think about like stuff that I, uh, media, because I've been watching a lot of um, um, like television, terrible television, but some good television. And um, I wanted to report in what did I watch that was really interesting. Uh, oh, the documentary John of God about the cult leader, this guy, okay, this Brazilian cult leader that like took over so and it, and it is the story of a, a religious cult leader who of course ended up sexually abusing all these women and but the way he did it was it just just brilliant like he, i'm not saying it's good i'm saying it's it's master masterful Cra- crafty and, crafty and masterful in his evilness and like so mm-hmm. john of god was this this poor dude from brazil who became a medium and and the thing is about Brazil, it was so fascinating is like Brazil has this history of these different cultures of like, you know, of a, I don't think they call it voodoo, but it's like the, the, the indigenous religion and mixed in Brazil with like Catholicism mixed with. So he like did a mishmash of, he like tricked him with his mishmashery. It was like new age. He hooked in like the white people that like new age stuff. He hooked it and it was huge. He had this huge center and then. And, and he legit, they can't find a reason. They, he legit like healed people. Like, oh wow! so it's a mix. And that is just what I'm saying about life is it's a combo platter. Like legit, he, they can't explain even his victims can't explain how they healed. Like this one woman, he healed his mother. Okay. But that. Well, that speaks to the power of suggestion and and people's ability to to ha- have more dominion over their bodies than they think. Remember um, in Man on the Moon when Andy Kaufman goes to have psychics? Isn't that what yes. I call psychic surgery? Yes. 
And what I remember, it's been a long time since I've seen that movie, but what I remember about it was that he, you know, he was doing it as a bit. Yes. But when he was there and he realized that the person who's doing the psychic surgery is doing the same thing that Andy Kaufman is doing and that it's an art and that he totally appreciated it. I mean, he died. Yeah. If he died, I don't know. People still say it was a hoax, but yeah. um, he had cancer supposedly, right? And then yeah, he had cancer. So, you know, like, and I feel this way about the placebo effect. It okay if it works, that's that's great. That's yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just about what, where you're getting to at the end, and if you believe that so and so is helping you with right. their, I mean, is this the kind of like Santeria? It, 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 it it's similar he like did his own thing where okay. he like channeled and mediums and but yes and he drew in from that it, it's it's just it's fascinating because this this like the character of and she's a real human but this woman who whose mom had a brain tumor so she goes and 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 she goes and this sexual abuse happens to her after he supposedly heals her mother, right? Like he does this treatment on her mother and I'm doing quotes because who the fuck knows. And then, but after the treatment, he's like, I'd like to see you alone in my office because you're the daughter. I want to give you blah, 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 blah. And abuses her. And then the next, like two days later, they go back to have another CT of the mom's brain and the tumor's gone. And the doctors are like, we don't know. So talk about that. Like, so she's like, I cured my mom because I was abused. It is so deep and so crazy that I like got all in. It's a Netflix documentary. So I'm just, there's a lot of new documentaries that are out there that are like, if you like psychological shit, oh boy. Okay, good. in this interview because she was getting a COVID test, but uh, please enjoy our conversation with Sean Gunn. Oh, for sure. 1000%. 1000%. Okay. Sean Gunn, you're the first person we're having on for the second time. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, All that means is that I've continued to survive theater school. And beautifully. Boz is not here because she is in line to get a COVID test and it's Ugh. a very long line. She found out she was exposed some other way and she doesn't feel well. So it's okay. not looking good. But um, so she, cool. she did pass along her, her thoughts and questions. So I'll do my okay. best to um, do, do cool. a, Yeah, do I feel best. a little pressure being the first repeat guest. I, I, I actually listened to my episode because I didn't want to repeat myself. So I'm like, wanted to refresh oh. my memory of all oh, the good. things I covered well then we're in the same boat because I did too so we're it's all fresh okay good. um yeah and there were a few things that you had started to talk about in the, the first time that I wanted to follow up with the first is that you know you described yourself as kind of an angry guy in school mm-hmm. and I don't know if you said this but I gather what you're saying is like you've let the anger go to some degree you, you don't feel like you're in that same place but right. what do you think why do you have an idea about why you were in that place um well you know the, the for me the best way to relate that to 
my experience of being in school is that I was essentially still, you know, maybe a child is, is too, is too extreme, but I was not a fully formed grown up yet. And, but I was still put in this position where I was putting pressure on myself to act like a grown up and to behave in a grown up way. I mean, all the pressures that we had in school, they're like, you know, you're being fed to the wolves. You're, you're a, you're an adult now. You have to make all the decisions that adults make. And <clears throat> as I mentioned, I'm the youngest of six. I was, I'd already put a lot of pressure on myself to act like an adult um, at a younger age than I should have. Uh, and, you know, I was 18 and 19 and, and confused about a lot of different things and um, carried around a lot of, uh, pretty serious issues about myself, my self-worth, you know, and, um, and all of the things that accompany that. And I just put a lot of pressure on that. And I, it, it, the way it, I think all those pressures manifest themselves differently to different people. But in my case, it manifested itself as I'm a tough adult and I'm just going to be an angry guy who hates everything. And that's going to be the defense mechanism that I use for navigating the world. <clears throat> okay. Does that make so sense? It does make sense, but that's kind of making me think you maybe weren't all that angry, but you were definitely feeling vulnerable and needing yeah. the, the, the armor maybe. And anger was the easiest way to access it because, because anger can make you feel powerful. Weirdly enough. Yes. Yeah, it's a way for somebody who's, um, who, who for me was, I, I was incredibly small, like literally small. I was like, you know, I, I had a little bit of height, but I'm super, super skinny. I still am. But then, you know, it's it's like when I was that age, I was just like, uh, I there's not a lot of ways to gain power other than to be somebody that other people are afraid of. And if you can't do that physically, you have to do it mentally and you have to do it with, you know, whatever the tools you have at hand. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I, it's funny. I remember David Avcali saying in my very first meeting, um, he, he was my faculty advisor, I think first year and, and, or, or no, maybe it was just a, a an acting class meeting. And I, I remember the first meeting I had with him just a few weeks into class. He told me that I was like um, a puppy with paws that were too big for my, you know, when you see like a, yeah. you see like a German shepherd puppy, their paws are way too big and they're stumbling around and they're clumsy and all those kinds of things. And he was using it to relate to how I used my hands when I acted in scenes and and I think that the analogy kind of stretched itself just to how I behaved as a, as a person. And I was like trying to be um, a tough, uh, angry dog, but I was a, I was a, a little puppy, you know, who was barking and then going and hiding in the corner. Yeah. But that's such a great metaphor because actually probably what was true is you were waiting to grow into whatever you're feeling now in, in your sort of more realized, happier, less angry, whatever place. But 
What about using emotion when you were in theater school? How good or not good do you think you were at being able to actually access your real feelings for the purpose of doing a, a part? That's a great question. And I think it's probably the the way that I um, that I improved the most in my four years at school. Um, and I, I, I think I just sort of mentioned this briefly the first, first time I was on, but, um, but taking John Jenkins technique class, um, in our, in, in, in my third year was super helpful to me. It's the, it's the probably more than anything else. It's the thing I think about now, um, from when I was in school, it's something that I kind of remember. And to, to me, I have no idea what he would say that the function of that class was, but to me, the function was to create a shortcut between my emotional world and my actual output in, in terms of my work and my, and my creative world. And so that, so that, you you know, you hear a lot about what, what it means to be a, um, you know, to use the Stanislavski method or to use, um, to use these different techniques in terms of using your, your own, your own emotional, uh, uh, you know, uh, wealth of information and how to translate that into the characters that you're playing and the work that you're doing. Um, but it's hard to really figure out in a, in a, in a, tactile way, how to really actually do that. Um, and that class, I felt like I, I, you sort of learn how to do it. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a tricky process, but, um, learning how to take what was going on with me emotionally inside and then translate it into the characters that I'm playing, um, it's something I still work to learn how to do. But um, but that's something that we talked about in school, and that I think I got I got better at, um, and it's incredibly important if you want to be really good. I think, um, you, you know, it's it, it, like you you have to you have to learn those shortcuts. You can't, you, you know, you can only be faking it when you're having your off days. Mm. Oh, that's that's the skill you rely on when you just this not there for you. Yeah, yeah, and I think, a, I think that's another important skill. You know, um, is being able to sort of fake it when you when you need to, but if you're faking it all the time, then it's not it's not real. And I think there are people who go too far in the in the opposite direction. You know, who are like uh, who who just think that it has to be one hundred percent real all the time, or or it's worthless. And that's also not going to help you very much when you're really trying to, you, you, you know, you, you need every, you need every tool in your toolbox to really make it work, I think. Well, it's not going to help you, especially if you don't, I mean, the people I hear and read about who who go all, all the way there, what I never hear them talk about is then what do they do for themselves and with themselves when when the working day is over? I'm gathering that they that they don't do it, that they just stay there. And maybe that's something like being an emotional cipher. Maybe that's just a gift that I don't understand. But to me, it seems like that's 
roiling up and, and bringing up a lot of emotion that I just don't, I can't figure out where people go with it, what people do with it when they're done. Yeah. I think that, um, I think that for some actors that can almost be like the drug, like that's almost the, the, the dragon that they're chasing is that they want to be so in inside of it whatever character they're playing and whatever role they're playing, they want to go there so fully that, that they just live there, you know, so that the, that, that moment that feels a hundred percent real um, is there when they need it. And, um, and I, I, I understand that, but it's also for me, it, it takes away from that, that element where acting is also a job and a profession and you have to be, you have to be in some sense beholden to the production that you're a part of and, you know, the producers <laughs> that, are, that are paying the, the bills for the, um, for the production, whether it's a stage production or a film or a television show, you know, and, and your coworkers and your, your, you know, um, there, there's no reason why, like if I have some process where, where I need to fully immerse myself in everything that my character is feeling, all the time, uh, you know, I, for me, I have to do that with some level of compassion for my coworkers who may not have that process and who are showing up to set and having a, a sort of different level of, uh, of, uh, of, you know, a, a different range of things that they're, they're bringing. I, I recently read, I don't want to, get off talking about something else, but, but I, I recently read this profile of Jeremy Strong, who's brilliant on succession and uh, this New Yorker profile where he's, he talks about how he's, he is fully immersive and how that can be. Um, and, you know, his performance on that show is amazing, but you can read between the lines and see that his coworkers uh, have difficulty with it sometimes. And, as somebody who loves actors and loves acting, I mean, I would, I would do anything to sit and have a beer with Jeremy Strong and talk about acting for, for three hours. But I would also love to sit and have a beer with, uh, you know, his, with Sarah Snook and Brian Cox and, and Karen Culkin as coworkers and their process is different. And I think that if you want to be the best of the best, you have to, you have to incorporate all of those things you have to think about everything that that your that your coworkers are bringing to the table in addition to what you're bringing to the table um yeah yeah well you have to be part of an ensemble i mean the, uh, succession is my favorite show and i think about right. it as being a great ensemble but then i also read that piece and i thought oh you're not part of an ensemble at all you're just doing you're just doing your maverick thing which you know i mean the proof is in the pudding he is a fantastic actor there's no denying it I, I actually haven't heard of, I mean, so who else comes to mind with that? Daniel Day-Lewis mm -hmm. um, and Heath Ledger and uh, uh, yeah, somebody he, else. Yeah, I think there are a number of, of actors. I think, um, you know, in the piece they talk about Dustin Hoffman. And... Oh, right, right. Dustin Hoffman. And they're all fantastic actors. And, and maybe there are some people who do that method and they aren't great actors. 
it seems like every every great actor <laughs> seems to have uh, not every great actor, but a lot of them seem to have this method. And it just seems like okay, well, yeah. But if when you leave the set or when you when you walk off of your scene, and you're just an asshole what have you really accomplished? I mean, I guess you've given a gift to the world, but what about the world that's right there with you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that's the, the kind of, that's what you're negotiating, right. Is trying to, trying to do a little of both. And it's, and it's where, you know, for better or for worse, actors really are artists. They really are creating, you know, and, um, and at the end of the day, do we care that Picasso was an asshole? Um, mm, like it, good point. does that matter? That's a great, to me, that's a grand existential question, you know? And, and then there's this other part too, where this thing about being an emotional cipher, this, this like people who describe themselves as some kind of a vessel. I've never asked anybody this question before, but do you, do you know what I mean when I say sometimes you meet actors who are your absolute heroes and then they're just the most boring person to talk to. Have you ever had that experience? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I feel like it's more common than I, that it's the other way, that people who, people who seem so sort of like grounded and normal and their work seems so like just just magnificently grounded in reality and then you meet them and it's like oh they're not you know <laughs> like in their real life they're they're crazy like I, I think I probably have more examples of that but um but you know it comes they, they come in all in, in all types and um and yeah I think there are a lot of great actors who hide inside the roles that they're playing and then don't don't have much utility for being real people in the in the real world um and are probably boring yeah um, yeah for sure uh, so so talking about technique or earlier made me uh think about what two things one one question is what did you have to really shift in terms of learning how to be an actor doing theater and then having to have a, your second education doing film? What's different about your approach to the work? And then the other thing is, what is the same or different about your process now as it was then? Mm -hmm. um, the, the biggest difference for me is the technical difference, which is that, the um, you know, I try to tell actors as much as I can that, that the working on film and television is like working on stage if they tend to think that it's like working on stage if but if the audience is two feet in front of them but it's actually much closer than that it's like it's like working on stage but if the audience is in miniature chairs that are set up all over the plane of your face <laughs> you know like if the audience is actually sitting on <laughs> you know like <laughs> Like the, the audience is right there. Like in, in, in navigating that technical difference can be tricky. And it's why a lot of like great, great theater actors are a, a little bit too big on camera. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, 
and and that's definitely one thing um internally i don't think it i don't think it it should change a whole lot i mean in both cases to me your your boss that you're beholden to is the character that you're playing so in both cases like whoever this character is that you're your job is to become that person and to fully realize uh, their experience. That's true whether you're whether you're acting on stage or acting um, on camera. Um, you know, full disclosure, I haven't been on stage in like 15 years. Mm -hmm. So I would love to, and I keep saying this, I'm my, I you know like my wife joked to me like last week I, I was like I got to get back on stage I got to go do a play and get back on stage and she says she says she said you say that to me about every six months <laughs> you you like go through this phase where you're like I don't know that I'm like I don't know that I feel comfortable in everything that I'm doing and in, in order to feel better about it I need to go get back on stage but I haven't done it in a long oh, time. Oh, but say more um, about that, the impetus. So you get to a place where you feel like you're disconnected, you're like disembodied, you're disconnected from what you're doing and you feel like going back to theater makes you feel connected again? Yes, it does. And it's also really just in terms of the amount of time that you get to spend with your character and being your character. Mm -hmm. You know, like like I, I can, um, you know, this past summer I did a, I did a, 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 I had a short arc on a TV series and it was one of my, my favorite roles that I ever played. Um, and it's a, it's called the terminal list. It's a, it's an Amazon series. that's coming out um, early next year. Um, and it was so fulfilling creatively, but it also, it lasted such a short amount of yeah. time. Right. You know, I like, I, I did my preparation and the, and the, the scenes that were really, the most fun to do were just over a few days of filming and and uh and and part of it is like you know you just want to be in it all the time when you're when when you love it it's like you just i i personally just want to be working way more than i'm actually working um i don't think i'm unique in that in that way um although i wonder sometimes if the most successful actors feel that like I wonder if Meryl Streep feels that way or you know hmm. um like if they she probably does you know but like but like I wonder if people who have the ability to be doing it all the time want to be doing it all the time I don't mm -hmm. know um but I I still feel like I'm 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 sort of ch chasing as much work as I want to do and um and the idea of tackling a character and being able to live inside his body for a few months and and then you know night after night for however long the run of the show is like that to me is is the most appealing aspect of it even more than you know just the the fun of getting on stage and having the audience right there which is also a total blast yeah well and I meant, well you know. that leads me perfectly to another thing i, w I was going to ask you about a little bit of a thought experiment um one of my fantasies is that we could go back and redo our intros with the same hmm. you know the same cast and just just for the experience of how well 
for me, the thing, because I'm so psychologically oriented, would be like comparing the the emotional experience of being in the play, meaning that like, I'm sure all I was then was nervous and insecure. I could bring something else to it besides that now. If you could do that, or not just necessarily an intro, but maybe a show from college, which one would you want to do again? And what do you imagine you might do differently? My gut, you know, if I was able to go back and do a show again that I did in college, my my gut is to do the one that went best and do it even better. And that, that one is raising captivity, you know? And like, I was a, I, I think that that show was super successful from a student perspective, but, um, but we were green and young and, and uh, um, I would go back and do that same show with the exact same cast if I could, you know, like it's, I, I was, I don't know, 20, I guess when, I did that show, but I'm more, oh gosh, this is so sad, but I, I'm probably too old to play that character now. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. I think anything goes in Nikki Silver's universe. Yeah, I could probably do it. But that, that was certainly my first instinct. I would go back and look at it. I, I, love, the, I love the concept of being able to bring, um, bring what we know now to, to roles that we played in the past. Um, uh, we talked about that on this podcast, Lee Kirk, that, um, you know, that the thing that sticks out to him, I think, more than anything about school is that we were a bunch of, of kids kind of playing dress up in a way that I'm, I'm paraphrasing. That's not how he put it, but that, that, that we were like, you know, that like he's playing these grown men <laughs> and, and sometimes old men, you know, I did this play born guilty that I was a, I was a, um, like 80 year old man mm -hmm. when I was 19. And it's probably one of the most successful roles that I had in college because, you know, when you're, when you're 19 and you're playing 30, you, you think that you're kind of, you think that you're kind of close. <laughs> you think you're kind of in the ballpark, right, right. but you may as well be playing 80. You're no closer, you know, like, like, when you're 19, you don't know any more about what it's like to be 30 than you know what it's like you to be You barely 80. know what it's like to be 19 when you're 19. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's one. We did that show, Born Guilty. I, I, I haven't read it in forever. I don't even know if it's a good play, but like it was a, it was a, a, a play about, um, uh, that took place in Germany about, um, you know, gr grown up children and grandchildren of Nazis who are like grappling, grappling with mm. their histories and knowing that, that people in their lives participated in this atrocity. And, uh, that's certainly a worthwhile, um, thing to, uh, to explore in terms of drama. Yeah. What, what's, what's um, an, what's the obstacle to doing a play now for you? Um, mostly time. I, you know, I'm not, if, if, if I was in a place in my career where I knew that I was, you know, starting a movie next September and then another movie, you know, like if I know my schedule and I could be like, okay, I can carve out 
you know, June, July, and August to do a play, um, maybe I would, but I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. Like sometimes I know uh, some things in my schedule uh, years ahead of time, but I'm, but I'm, I'm also, you know, you, you have to be available. That's kind of what I, it's kind of like what I chose in terms of this um, career is they, is that the, you know, you <laughs> like, like it affords a lot of free time, but, but your free time could disappear at any right, moment. Right. Um, and I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm needing to make sure that I make a living. I, I feel better about that than, than, than I have at certain points in my career, but I, you know, there's no money in, in theater. Oh, really? You know, I, I, <laughs> I hate that. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, I hate to be, I, I, yeah, I know. I, I'm sure everybody, everybody's aware of that. Um, and, uh, and so that's, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, No, that makes perfect sense. You, you would want to feel like you were completely set before you just decided to devote three months when you could be making a ton of money to, to mm -hmm. something that you're going to probably have to pay for yourself. Um, yeah, right. So, so that brings me to one of Boz's questions. She is really obsessed recently with this idea of legacy um, and what she wants her legacy to be and what people want their legacy to be. And I'm wondering if you ever think about that and if you have any idea about it? I think about it. A really? Lot. Okay, great. Um, yeah. Um, well, it's, it's kind of like what we were talking about being a, you know, actors really are artists and um, it's, it's important to me that nothing lasts forever, but that the, that the work that I do has some sort of, uh, value beyond the scope of my life. Um, that's been a defining characteristic, I think, of how I look at the world since I was young. Mm. Um, I, I want I want my work to to people to continue to to look at it and and to see it, and to people to. to I think that when you when you leave something, that's your way of of surviving longer than your actual life um i've always felt that even more than uh, like I, I don't have children you know and maybe if i did uh it would i would feel differently about what is surviving from me after i'm gone um but i i think a lot about what i want but but not in terms of what it actually <laughs> Not in terms of what it actually is. Like, I don't think about that from project to project. I just think about the fact that I want my work to be good and and for it to survive after I'm gone. Mm -hmm. um, it won't survive forever because nothing will, but, but the people will know that I was an actor and that I gave it my best and that my work, you know, moved people in some way or made them happy or made them laugh or or whatever it is. Like, that's, that's super important to me. Um, pr probably more important than it is to uh, to many of my peers. I think. Um, hmm. I could be well, wrong. What, what makes you say that? Um, I don't know. I guess because I, I, I guess because I, I do occasionally feel 
um, haunted by it. You know, like when when you everybody worries. I don't know about everybody, but I think most people kind of worry about dying when they lay awake mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> in the, at night before they go to bed. Yes. You know, and for me, the the idea that I'm creating work that's going to continue that I, after that um, is of some comfort to me, uh, really more than anything else is yeah i i can see why i i actually never um ever once thought about anything related to legacy but my sister died this summer just like very unexpectedly and she there is she has i mean she had two kids but other than that she has zero legacy like there's zero imprint she's not she wasn't on social media so you can't even have that it's like they didn't do an obituary for her it was it was just all the way over and that so that was the first time that i thought oh yeah you do want to make something that lasts forever so that there's some record of your existence Mm -hmm. yeah gosh i'm so sorry to hear that by the way it's such a it's such a thank you well you have a bunch of siblings (laughs) they're all still living right they are they are but my dad my dad died about two years ago um and uh you know i I think that it when your parents dies it's it can't it can't help but put you into that frame of mind where you start to think about it Mm -hmm. you know yeah actually that was another one of boz's questions she said she she has the idea unless she's wrong that your dad and particularly the fact that your dad was was a judge is a big part of your life or a big it's very meaningful to you i don't don't exactly know what she was getting at but she wanted you to talk about your dad yeah um my dad actually my dad's dad was a judge and and uh and but my and he had my grandfather had five sons he had nine kids irish catholic um then the and the and he had five sons who were all um attorneys and um and it has a, a legacy of of lawyers and judges and and things like that and my up and down my family um but my dad um i, I don't know really where to begin with talking about my dad he was a really really great and complicated guy um he did a great job raising six kids a whole section of his life i think was um was a bit of a mess you know he was he he had drinking problems when he was younger even though he was making his way through law school and and having children and whatever and he got he got sober in the 70s and um and the the thing you know he he had a great impact on a lot of people um he's a really really good human i think a lot i think if you asked 100 people who knew him what they admired or respected most about him you'd get 100 different answers Hmm. um for me what i admired and respected most was that he continued to improve over the course of his life and to learn you know and that even at the very end he never ever gave over to well this is just who I am and nobody's going to change me you know he he tried to keep his eyes open and 
and be a, be a better person all the time. Um, that's kind of what it's about, really. I think. I mean, if if like if you're if you're continuing to improve as a human being, I don't know what else you can really ask of yourself. Um, totally, that's your main job. But uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know he. he we're all in the entertainment industry and he had a big gregarious personality. He was the center of the room of every room we walked into. And I think that that's plays a little bit of a part in terms of his kids being, um, entertainers, you know, even though I'm really the only performer, I guess. Yeah. But the, and this, this question came up the last time we were talking about, you know, she at Boz asked why, how do you get a family of so many, uh, people in the industry and, and what, and I didn't know this bit about your dad. I mean, I, I would wonder if, listen, when people, when parents have big personalities, kids are wrapped and they spend a lot of time really just wanting to be on the inside of whatever the magic is that their, that their parents have. And hmm. one of the like pretty straightforward ways to do that is to, not to only perform, but to be in a position where other people are evaluating you in a, in a sort of like a, in a public way. And in your case, evaluate, you know, and your brother and whoever evaluating you favorably must have felt good to, for your dad, as well as, you know, you guys, the, the thought that you've mm-hmm. been, been able to impress him must, must be a good feeling. Yeah, I think it is. Um, but the, Oh, it's certainly a good feeling. He was definitely proud of, of, of all of us as he should have been. I mean, you know, his kids turned out pretty good. There's no, there's no weak link amongst us except my brother, Matt, he's useless. Um, but, the, uh, <laughs> um, you know, but, but honestly, I think that he, he was proud. Um, and, and he would be, I don't know. He was, he'd be super proud in public, you know, like, oh, have you seen, you know, talking about my brother, like, have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy? You know, my son, you know, have you seen Gilmore Girls? He's on, he was on Gilmore Girls. You ever see that show? Like, he'd be super excited to point that out. But the funny thing is, is that I think privately he wasn't, he wasn't that much more impressed by that than he was just by the fact that his kids, like, were, were you know good people and had good jobs and yeah you know were good parents and like like I think that he 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 felt pretty uh I think he felt pretty proud of all of his all of his kids and I'm I mean I'm just I'm incredibly lucky I'm I'm way more he was he was very warm he would cry at the drop of a hat he was very um Irish Catholic uh had warmth mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I'm, I'm less, I'm not quite, I have that in me. I'll never get rid of it, but I, I, I'm just, I'm incredibly lucky to have been, to have hit him as somebody who I was able to watch and see how he did things and, you you know, um, and, and to see the mistakes that he made too. Your, your parents seem amazing. Your, your parents, I mean, from what you said about your mom last time and about your dad, they seem like really special people. Yeah, they're cool. Um, so what kind of uh, work art that you consume these days is really moving you? 
well, um, gosh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to try to work my way into, um, to be, being able to have a, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more autonomy in terms of making my own stuff. So I'm, my antenna is pretty attuned to that. Um, my wife is, is a, an actor and a director and she is has just started directing her first feature um and is is doing this you know it's an it's an indie low budget horror film which is a lot of ways a lot of times the easiest way to start because it's the it's there's a market for it and you can get something made and get people to watch something even though it's on a low level and, and she's immensely talented so we watch a lot, I watch a lot of things with her and we watch things that try to, you know, um, give ideas in terms of like what, what, uh, what budgets look like and what, uh, you know, what, I, how did they do this? How were they able to make this? You know, who, who, who financed it? Um, mm. th- those types of things. So a lot of the, the, the could for whatever reason, whether it's creatively or, or, production wise could be helpful in terms of like trying to make our own stuff. Um, but then there's also things like, like we were talking about succession earlier and we, you know, like if you're an actor, I, I think there, there's nothing better than watching those, those actors like joust. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is just like what they're doing week in and week out. Um, is that what it is for you? The acting or, I mean, cause the acting is great. I I just think the story is so compelling, and 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 the fact that like what it makes me think about is that everything is just about family. <laughs> like literally, everything yeah. is just about going away from and returning to and fighting with and embracing family. And I mean, and I guess it's sort of loosely based on King Lear, so that makes it compelling too. But is it mostly about the acting for you? Is that what you love? And the writing. I mean, I think that the acting and the writing, you know, ideally the, the great TV shows are just like this great grand dance between the, you know, the, the, act, the acting and the writing, I think. Um, and, uh, and so I, I totally agree with you that just being about family and how it's so weird that, the, that not, that so little can happen on a show and it can be so compelling. Um, I saw somebody tweet succession is an example of, or is it gives us hope that you can tell not show sometimes, mm. which I thought was, yeah, that's really true. Because as I go to write things, I'm, I'm constantly like, it's gotta be moving. It's gotta be moving. It's gotta be, you know, it's gotta be going somewhere. It's not mm-hmm. going to be interesting, but actually if it's well, written well enough, it, it can be, it can be a living room drama, literally. I agree. My my fear is that there's, um, <laughs> you know, Tarantino movies are a little bit like this. My my fear is that it's going to create a bunch of copycats that can't do what it does. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like just because this show can have a you know have a have a an episode that's almost all dialogue of characters like moving in in space in one big room doesn't mean that you should do that too <laughs> you know it, it it's a it's an incredibly um 
it's an incredibly tricky thing for writers to do. And I bring up Tarantino because I think I, I just feel like I've read a hundred scripts where like, it's clear that they've read Tarantino and they know that he can have a 10 page scene right. um, that is super compelling and works. And it's like, yeah, but almost no one else can do that. Just so you know, like, it's yeah. like, it's like he, he can do it because he's, he can do it. That's his skill. But like in general, don't put a, don't put a 10 page um, scene in a, in a car in, into your screen. Yeah. Play. And also like, if you're writing something, ask yourself, have I seen this before? Because if you've seen it before, there's no real need for you to write it again. The thing that would be great is if you could write the thing that hasn't been written and that's uniquely your mm -hmm. own story. I feel like that's something. And honestly, I think that people do that because they're afraid that what they have to say is not powerful enough. And that's usually not true. If you're called to tell story, whether it's through writing or directing or, or performing, then you... You, you already have what it takes, right? You just have to mm -hmm. like, that's what, but it's very hard to do. It's very hard to stay on the authentically you track. Yeah. Writing is such a, it, and you do more writing than, than anything these days. Is that right? Or yeah. is, that, mm -hmm. is that what you're, that's your main creative. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. um, and it's just so, it's so tricky. I've been, trying to do more of it i've dabbled in it i have you know siblings that are professional writers and so i know just how what a what a beast it is to to be able to have that kind of discipline to to stay in it and um it's it's so it's so hard i would much rather somebody just gave me yeah yeah script. totally well yeah me, yeah me too <laughs> so okay so this is kind of a big question and i know we don't have that much time left but um one of the main things that's happened in the industry in these last two years is just shakeups in every direction. Um, maybe less so for film and TV than for, <clears throat> excuse me, than for theater, but certainly Me Too had a big impact on the industry. And I've never asked anybody this before, but what's it like to be a man in the industry in the time of Me Too? not not being accused of any wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I hear some people say is they feel like they're just worried that they're going to do something unintentionally. Where do you, where do you fall on that? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I wonder, I wonder if those people had uh have some sort of guilty. <laughs> I, I, uh, let me be fair. I understand that fear. I think that, that, I think that people, men in particular are more, um, on their toes in terms of, um, not saying the wrong thing and not saying or doing anything that is going to get them in trouble. Um, and mostly I think like, how great is that? Like, good. You know, isn't that the whole, isn't that the whole reason for it? Isn't the whole, it's like, you know, the whole, not the whole reason, but the, but the, the best outcome of, of what happened with me too, isn't, isn't that, you know, Harvey Weinstein finally went to prison or, you know, that I won't name any more names, but that, you know, um, bad actor, a, B, or C 
isn't going to work anymore or has difficulty working. Um, the best thing is that on a day-to-day -day level, people who have people who were subtly sexist and um, and subtly, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, well, it's it's not just sexism, but it's, yeah. it's all of that. It's the it's it's the day to day stuff that we are forced to correct, um, to think about. That that's what's important is that we that we stop doing those things. Um, I've I've had those thoughts before where I'm like, oh, is there other things that I said or did that would have been construed incorrectly? Um, for me, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be actions as much as it would be like jokes that I made, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. that I thought that like you know, um, I I don't think I I don't think I have any concerns that I sexually harassed anybody, but I may have made jokes about sexual harassment that that were that I shouldn't have. You and know, certainly, sure. if we could have a camera on what was happening at theater school, <laughs> we would all oh, be God. canceled. Everybody would get everyone would be canceled. <laughs> Um, but like, I, I think that in general, it's mostly, it's mostly good. What I notice on set is that people are a little more careful and a little more respectful. And that's what we want is for people totally. to be a little more careful and a little more respectful. Yeah. Um, you, you know, what's the big, a lot of the times people that are, the people that complain the loudest pretend that they're complaining because there's jokes they used to be able to make that they can't make anymore. But it's like, so what, is that really why you're complaining the loudest, you know? Yeah. Um, yesterday when the, I, I think it was yesterday when the Jeff Garland thing came out and I read his comments that, you know, um, he, he I, I'm bottom line, bottom lining it and paraphrasing, but it was something like, you know, how I interpret it was like, I should just be able to be who I am and everybody else who feels offended by it should get over it. And I thought, okay, good. That actually helped me crystallize the the problem with this can't say anything uh, mentality is what you're saying when you say that is hmm, so that I can always be authentically who I am and not have fear about being who I am you must not be authentically who you are <laughs> and, you know, be honest about how the world is, uh, how, how it's affecting you. And that, that's the, that's the shift I think that has to happen yet for, for mm -hmm. many people. And forgive me, I've, I'm, I'm actually glad that I've been off Twitter for a few days. I don't know what happened with Jeff Rowling. But yeah, oh, he got fired from his show because there's, a couple of years of HR complaints, nothing like assault. Mm. And I think even maybe nothing like harassment, but that, no, I guess it's harassment, you know, just that he makes off color mm -hmm. jokes. He, you know, he's loud, bombastic guy, I'm sure. But, you know, okay. So it's not that it's wrong to be bombastic, but, but it's also not wrong to interrogate your automatic, you know, uh, things that you say or that, you know, your automatic reactions to things. There's nothing wrong with taking a look at that to your point of what you're saying about your dad getting better. There's nothing wrong with just continuing to get mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and and from my view, by and large, most of the people who have who have gotten in trouble, you know, like it seems like most of the people who were sort of thoroughly canceled, um, there was very good reason for it, and and the most of the people who it seemed a little more complicated, like a little dicier, like who got into trouble, um, they weren't actually canceled. They were sort of checked and have mostly gone on to do other things. And probably in that case, it's probably rightfully so. I mean, it would, it's not within my area of expertise to go through one by one and say what's fair and what isn't. But I, I think for the most part, um, things have kind of, uh, you know, um, shook out fairly. I mean, you know, I, 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 I got into my, 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 as most people know, my brother got into trouble for old, old tweets that he wrote and was, oh, and, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, no, and, and was, and it, it was originally fired from Guardians 3, but I think that the, and it, some of it was, um, you know, without getting into too much detail, it's like some of it was, uh, was a knee-jerk reaction to what was going on in the moment. A lot of it was unfair because it was stuff that had been apologized for and dealt with and like had been moved on for. And um, eventually he, he got rehired um, and I think it all sort of worked out. Um, was there some level of unfairness to it? Uh, probably, but why would that be what we dwell on? I mean, how much unfairness has there been from the other side for decades and decades? So um, I don't know. It's a it's certainly a complicated issue. Maybe maybe was, you should start another podcast about just that. Yeah, seriously, seriously. <laughs> but that's what you're filming right now, right? Aren't you doing great? Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. How is it going? Yeah, that's what I'm here. We're, we're doing Guardians 3. Um, great. Oh, you know what I wanted to mention because I didn't mention it on the. I, I couldn't believe that the first time on I didn't I didn't bring this up, but you know I do I do two roles in the in the Marvel movies. I I, I play Kraglin, who's an on screen character that has um, that has had an expanding role in 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 the movies, but um, but I also play Rocket, the raccoon on set, and Bradley Cooper does his voice in the movies, but I'm. I'm there every day when we shoot the scenes and uh, and I'm kind of there mostly to work with the other actors, um, but also to some degree to, to work as a visual reference for the, the special effects team so that when they when they see where how rocket is, how his face is moving and things like that, they're able to use use what I'm doing as a reference as a jumping off point for how to animate the character. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is that in the first movie the the way that um that this came about was i had been hired i knew i was going to read his lines but we weren't sure exactly how we were going to shoot the scenes and in the first rehearsal i was like i'm just going to get down on my hands and knees and use some of the animal training that we learned in school if you remember we all like went went to the zoo and watched animals and we would have to pretend to be those animals. Yeah. And so I got down and like started just being a raccoon on the ground. Um, 
it was approximately the right. I'm, I have some weird limber, my, my, my hips are oddly limber so I can get down to a crouch and kind of move around from that position really easily. And, uh, and I was able to get down on my hands and knees and pretend to be a raccoon. And that's what worked. And, you know, now I'm doing my, my sixth movie as, as rocket. And I just thought it was, I just think it's so funny. That's like how many actors that went to the theater school were able to use that, that animal training, you know, for, for, for something other than children's theater. I, yeah, I, I uh, that's, you know, or, or, that's, or whatever, that but, is, yeah. that's a, that's, that if you had said, if somebody had said to you when you were doing that at the time, oh, this is going to pay off big for you, you might not believe them. You may need to play a raccoon. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.